So, okay, we're studying the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 9, is where we find ourselves today. And going through Acts um, today, looking at the conversion of Saul. So Steph Stephanie shared her story about her conversion, what it was like. Typically when we ask you to share your testimony, it's like, what was your life before you met Christ? What, what, how did you meet Christ? And then how have things been different after you became a Christian? Um, that's the same thing we're going to talk about today with Saul. When we look at Saul's life, we're going to talk along two headings. The first is a conversion narrative, and secondly is a conversion legacy. So we're going to talk about a conversion narrative of Saul becoming a Christian and then a conversion legacy, what his legacy would be afterwards. Those are two things in your bulletin. But I want to start off with a story. Um, about, uh, this is the story of, of my own life. I had already been a Christian. And um, about 20 years ago, am I doing this right, Bobby? I don't know. Just like that. So about 20 years ago, um, about 20 years ago, I was hanging out late with some of my friends. Um, so 20 years ago, that would have made me. So I'm 38, 28. 18, maybe a little bit, little bit older than that, and uh, it was about 1 a.m. in the morning. I'm just kind of, you know, just kind of trying to find that era of my life. So it was 1 a.m. in the morning, and we had this place that we went to in, in Flushing, New York. If you've ever heard of Flushing, Flushing is Koreatown, New York City, um, and it's it's a really kind of rundown, kind of ghetto place. And at 1 a.m. You know, you have the neon lights, and we had, there was this one restaurant that we always went to called Cozy House, translated into Korean. It was Gochijip. Um, so that's where we went. Gochijip means cozy house, and we were there at 1 a.m. For those people here, the Korean speakers understand that. I'm sorry, I don't mean to, kind of. It's just it sounds funny. That's why it's it's just I never got it until I was preparing this this talk, but. The Cozy House restaurant at 1 a.m. in the morning, they made like the best, most terrible food you could eat at 1 a.m. in the morning. And at 18, 19, 20 years old, it was just awesome. And we were hanging out and we were eating. And um, I remember the door opening and, uh, you know, for some reason, I remember blustery winter and snow coming in. And in walks from the wintry outside this haggard looking guy just with a thin mustache skinny and bags under his eyes and he looked more like a like a homeless person he was Korean walk into the restaurant and come up to us and you know we're getting ready to for the you know can you you know for a handout instead it wasn't a handout it was a handout to us he was trying to hand something to us and when we saw what it was it was religious literature and we refused because typically you you know you, you don't receive that. Um, and frustrated and anxious, he took his religious literature and he just went back out. And I never saw him again. And it was it, it was an interesting experience. It's strong enough to leave this kind of memory in my mind for 20 years. And the memory was: Is that really what conversion is? When you convert and you get and, and you really experience a, um, uh, I, I think Stephanie used the words about a truly submission. A true submission. Some people might call it a second baptism. Some people might call it, you know, being born again. 
again, or whatever the case is, is that what you're going to end up looking like? Like this really kind of desperate person that's trying to hand you religious literature and trying to do the work of the Lord and just alone and disappearing out into the wintry outside all by yourself. I, it, it, when you get hot for God, so to speak, is that what you have to be? Is that what you end up looking like? God, I hope not. Like it, it just seemed really off. So I tell that story. It's kind of the background because Saul, when Saul becomes a Christian, when he... He looks a little bit like this. He looks a little bit rough around the edges at first. This is somebody that's really kind of borderline anxious and, and, and a little too zealous for his good and somebody that, that, that's just kind of, you know, um, you know too, too hot to handle. Um, so diving into Saul's story and how he became a Christian, I think it's timely because as you can tell, for those of you that were with us at Harvest, um, I'm really trying to place an emphasis that each Sunday when we have people that are coming, especially during our previous services, we want it to be evangelistic. We want to invite people to the Lord. What will it look like as some of these people become Christians, as people be begin to come to the faith? What will the conversion look like? And so on that note, let's start with Acts chapter 9, verse 1. And as we look at these, these first section, I'm going to be reading a lot here. Um, as we look at these verses, think about Paul and what his, what his life looks like. Does he look like that guy that comes in from the winery outside, you know? So a conversion narrative, Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Now, very detailed. You've got detailed specifics there. This is, this is a, a recollection. In verse 12, This Saul has seen a vision, and in a vision a man named Ananias came in and lay, lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard about it this man many things about this man how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name but the Lord said to him go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake and so Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying his hands on him said brother Saul the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight 
And he got up and was baptized. Then he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he? Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Is this not he? Isn't this the one? What was Paul, what was Saul like before he became a Christian, before he converted? You get a picture here of somebody, right from the beginning from verse 1, breathing, heaving, very animated, breathing threats and murder. The word behind that is just, it's a sense of just being inhaling. So he's very animated, he's uh, it's just a vicious dude. Not only is he animated, but he's got this reputation it says in verse 21, Is this not the one who destroyed in Jerusalem those who called on this name? So you've got this guy who's got this reputation as the destroyer. If I were to literally translate this, it would be, Is this not the ravager? Is this not the destroyer? Um, I, I didn't really have a tough background growing up either. But I knew guys who did um, and who became Christians. And they literally had these nicknames the destroyer or the ravager. That was what people called Saul. So before his conversion, you had somebody with a reputation that preceded him. So just pause for a moment. All of you have a story. Um, we have people up here to share their testimony so that we can um, know, each other, know each other more, but also for you to practice. What was your life like before? If there if there was a nickname for you, what would that nickname have been? You know, um, you know, the Marvel superhero or the destroyer, whatever. What was, just think for yourself, if you were to share your story, and you will be sharing your story, what were you called? Now I'm even thinking myself. I might have been the skeptic, or I might have been the doubter. So, what was your nickname? So the destroyer and the ravager, get this, meets God. That to me is significant. The destroyer and the ravager meets God. Churches are imperfect places. But remember who you once were and remember that you met God. And in meeting God, you were given a new name, a new name. So after Paul's conversion, Saul literally given a new name from Saul to Paul, quite literally given a new name, no longer the destroyer or the ravager, um, he would become an apostle. And it says that when he was converted, at that moment, he was for three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. So for three days, I mean, it's bad enough that you can't see, but I want a cheeseburger, right? It's bad enough that I've lost, I've been impaired with one of my senses. So I want to fulfill the other, but he goes for three days intentionally without eating, and not only that, without drinking. So he's pushing the limits of what's physiologically good for you. 
And you begin to wonder, what was he doing for those three days? For three days, was he in a catatonic shock? Was he just like, like I, you know, he's had this experience. What exactly was he doing during those three days? Not eating, not drinking, what was going on? It says in verse 11 and verse 12, what was he doing? He was praying. So this was not a passive catatonic shock, like, you know, drool you know, slipping down. This is an active seeking God. So he's actively praying, and it says in verse 12, he has seen in a vision. So he's actively praying, and he's having visions. Now, for somebody that's grown up in the church, there is a moment where we have this conversion. I also think I relate to what Stephanie said. There is also a moment where we have these deeper experiences of submission or of deeper life. That's something I relate to very much as well. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not trying to make you feel like, oh, I haven't had it, therefore I doubt if I'm... That's not, that's not, that's not what I want you... That's not where I want you to be. But for some people, not all, but for some people, something happens in your life where you have a deeper experience. Um, and Saul, no doubt, knew God. As a Jew did, he knew how to pray. He knew Yahweh. But he had a deeper experience of God through Christ. And for three days, I don't know, lying on his bed, just thinking about God with tears maybe streaming down the side of his face that, that, that's, that, that's, that, and, and, just, and just praying. I don't know, maybe, maybe in his prayers, wrestling with God. I mean, what do I even call you? Do I call you Elohim? Do I call you Yahweh? Or do I call you Jesus? How do you switch prayer like that? There was a time in my life, I remember, um, when I was hit with such a strong depression that trying to pray made it worse. In my prayer, I was trying to sort it out, so to speak. Trying to sort it out and figure God out. Good luck, it'll make you only more mad. So I'm beginning to wonder, what was he praying? Was he trying to sort it out Having these visions and seeing things. Um, if you feel dry, I just want to say there, there's always more with God. There's always more. If you, feel like, um, if you feel like you've hit a wall, I can tell you there, there's always more. God, there's always more to discover. There's always a deeper place to be. Um, it might not look like it did back then. Your new faith, your newer faith, it, it's, it might, it might, you might not be that hot young thing that you were back then, but your faith nonetheless will grow deeper. And we'll talk more about that in a moment here. So that's the first part. That's Paul, or Saul, I should say, not yet Paul, but that's, his, that's the story of his conversion. So if there's one takeaway for all of us, just at this moment, once again, what was your name? What was the name? What was your reputation? before and how might people call you today are you the encourager are you the joyful one are you the solid rock Peter are you the one who loved John 
Or Barnabas, are you the encourager? Um, Because your reputation will precede you. Um, Even for myself, now that I've realized um, as we've been church planting, like for example, when I go to Lifetime Fitness, I don't don't want to have the reputation as that angry guy or the guy that looks on the noobs or or whatever, you know. And that that, that even has affected my thinking realizing, hey, I'm a missionary. I'm a missionary to this place. I'm a missionary when I go to this place. I'm a missionary when I'm with that scene and that crowd. Thinking about how I will be remembered or how my reputation will precede me, it it definitely is sobering. Um, The early Christians, when the Romans watched them, when the Romans looked on at the early Christians, they had one reputation. They, They said, those Christians are weird. They believe they eat the flesh of the Lord a lot of misunderstandings there and then they they, they, they they dunk themselves in water and they do all these strange rites and things but if there's one thing about them and this is a second you know this is a non-Christian source that said this the historian said if there's one thing about them my goodness how they love one another how they love one another and that was the reputation that preceded the early church so again your reputation, your nickname before Christ, and what it will be henceforth. Hopefully not like the angry one or the, the bossy one or, you know, and I speak, I, I'm really speaking about myself at this point. So we continue uh, with a conversion legacy. Acts chapter 9, verse 22. A conversion legacy. But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. Now listen to this. But his disciples, the dude was just converted. He's already got disciples in verse 25. His disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. When he came to Jerusalem, he was, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. I, am I the only one that finds this slightly humorous? Like I was laughing when I was working through this and not believing that he was a disciple. But here comes Barnabas. Remember Barnabas, the guy back in, I believe it was chapter 4. He was a really, really good guy, well-respected in the community. He was generously giving his, um, he gave of his estate to the church. Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord, how Paul, Saul had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had talked to him, and how at Damascus, Saul had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. You should have seen this guy go. From one day, dragging us to death, he was there at Stephen's stoning. To now proclaiming Jesus, I mean, hot dang, this was amazing. And he's trying to convince the apostles, and the apostles are watching and saying, you know, this guy's, this guy's risky. I'm not sure about this. He's bringing the heat, and we're trying to calm things down. This Saul is dangerous. And it continues on in verse 28. And Saul was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem. 
So you get the sense that this was somebody that was unrestricted, somebody that was known not only by the Christians now, but also by the Jewish community. So he was unrestricted, moving about freely, speaking, about, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. Verse 29, he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. Now the second time, twice he gets a death threat. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. <laughs> and so in verse 30, so then... It's almost like a conclusion. Then the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The early church continued to increase. So, um, any of you remember um, in the 80s, uh, musician Bobby Brown? Not Bobby Bang, Bobby Brown. And he had this song, and it was in a movie. And the, the lyric, it goes, too hot to handle, too cold to hold. Somebody going to finish that? <laughs> Nobody knows this song? Okay. Control. Because <laughs> hey, we're the same age. We know what we're talking about. They're, they're called the Ghostbusters. And they're, anyway, too hot to handle, too cold to hold. That's Saul. He's too hot to handle, and he's too cold to hold. He comes onto the scene. You see Barnabas having to take hold of him in verse 27. When you become a new Christian, man, I am hot for the Lord. Who wants to go track bombing with me? <laughs> track bombing. I'm not sure that's exactly effective. But we're going to do it anyway. And we're going to go do it in a town where everybody hates Christians. Like, I've seen this happen. I have friends whose lives were, were, were literally threatened. And for them, they're like, I got my life threatened today. This was on, like, mission trips. And we're like, good? I don't know what to think about that. So Barnabas has to take hold of him. Those are the words used. In the Greek, it's not as, I, I don't think the metaphor, I don't think the, the nuance is there. It, it, come across, it comes across in the English, like, hang on, let me get a hold of you. Put your arm around this guy and say, come on. You know, there's a way to do this, and there's not a way to do this. So let's, let's show you the ropes. And Barnabas is going to do that with Saul. Oh, I, I really hope that we can become woven Right? Where that you not only have the Saul's, but you have the Barnabases. The Barnabas that will say, let me temper you a little bit. You're a little too much. Or you're, you know, this is something that's a blind spot. Barnabas comes along, the encourager takes hold of him. Um, I'm taking some liberties here, but you can almost translate it that, you know, Barnabas had to rescue him from his peril. That's one, the, the, the word there. To rescue him from his own danger. Because this guy is just too hot. I mean, mind you, remember, just before the story, what happened with the church? Anybody remember? There was a huge persecution. Stephen spoke up, got himself martyred, and as a result, the persecution broke out, and the church was really suffering. What the church needed at this time was a respite. The community needed rest. The community needed to recoup. A lot of them left Jerusalem and went out. That was the diaspora, the, the, the spreading out of the Christians. But the church in Jerusalem needed to rest, recoup, get its bearings. Here comes Saul shaking everything up again. Now we don't know. Saul might have come into Jerusalem and just, you know, in his zeal, he might have sunk the whole ship. This, to this day, we might not have had Christianity if Saul was given free reign to shake him up and they had another round of persecution, it might have destroyed the early church. And the apostles know this. So here comes Saul, a maverick in many ways. Too much, too hot to handle. 
you know, he's like, yeah, I just came back from Damascus and they let me down from a hole in the wall in a basket and now I want to get my life threatened again and just kind of shake the community and wreck it all over. It was too much. It, it was, it, I, I imagine the apostles seeing, okay, all right, what's, bro what's blown into town? And they see Saul... And it's almost like this exchange goes on. It says, I don't like you because you're dangerous. And Saul looks at Peter and says, that's right. Ice. Man, <laughs> I am dangerous. Right? Top Gun 2 is coming out soon. Right? I don't like you because you're dangerous. And that tension, I think it exists throughout the New Testament. You see it. When you read the epistles of Paul, you see Paul kind of like, almost like, yeah, I was with the super apostles, Peter and all those guys up in Jerusalem. There, there, is, there is almost this underlying tension. And the thing is, if I were in the shoes of the apostles, right, I don't like this guy. He's dangerous. He's bringing the heat. He's rocking the ship too much. And Saul's like, that's right, I'm dangerous. <laughs> and, and um, you know, there is something here about this that this thing is no longer in the apostles' control. Now, I'm a pastor. I know what it's like to lead. I know what it's also like to let go. I'm learning. And there's an important principle here that you've got Peter, James, and John, the super apostles, the preeminent ones, and they had nothing to do with Saul. Saul comes along and they said, who taught you? Who discipled you? And he said, Jesus himself. And they're like, oh boy. Okay, so he's right. Okay. Um, and there's this sense where the movement is now no longer within their, quote unquote, control. And you know, that's an important missionary principle. It's a very important missionary principle. And that's this. Sometimes... The missionary, this is the fill in the blank, is the very thing hindering the movement. Sometimes the missionary is the very thing hindering the movement. If the apostles suppressed Paul, Saul, too much, the movement would never have taken off. Sometimes the missionary, and if you've ever studied missions or if you've ever taken something called the perspectives course, you, you're going to learn this principle that the missionaries themselves were the impediment to the gospel. And then when the missionaries let go, you see strange things popping up, you know, people having visions of the Lord and things happening. In other words, here at Woven, what we want is not just... <laughs> what we want is movement. That's the key word. That's why when we have preview services, and we'll talk more about this later, um, what we want to do is spark movement. And in sparking movement, um, that means letting go. So if that's the fill in the blank, sometimes a missionary is a very thing hindering the movement. Here's another one. Maybe, maybe you'll write this one down too. I thought this was tweetable. It was so good, it was tweetable. And it's this, you know what, woven? Woven will grow if I let go. Now, some of you are going to say, that's right, Pastor. Woven will grow if you let go. That applies to all of you as well because you're all missionaries, all right? You're all missionaries just, just as much as I am. We're all missionaries here. 
your, your missionaries to your workplace, your missionaries to 24-hour fitness, your missionaries to Falcon Landing Boulevard, to your neighborhood, your missionaries to those people that you raise, those little people that you raise in your house, your missionaries to so on and so forth, to your PTA, to your, 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 your kids' parents' friends, your, your, I mean your kids', your kids friends' parents, and so on and so forth, your missionaries. But the thing is, it will grow when we let go. The church will grow if I let go. Woven will grow if I let go. Can you say that with me, please? Together? One, two, three. Woven will grow if I let go. Woven will grow if I let go. Um, I don't think Peter, James, and John, and the apostles had a choice. Like, they didn't have to let, letting go or not Saul was just kind of, he was going to do it anyway. He was, this guy was on fire, he was going, and this thing was happening. So, um, But Barnabas says, I'm going to take hold of him, and this is where it gets a little interesting, and I think it's going to speak a little bit to what Stephanie was talking about, and about this experience of, of look at verse 20, I'm sorry, look at verse 30. I don't know why. I, it's just very humorous to me, this whole thing. So they brought Saul down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. Now, what was Saul's name? What was his, his extended name? Saul of Tarsus. In other words, they sent him home. And he was just so much. And Barnabas, you know, taking hold of him, and they send Saul home to Tarsus. <laughs> they brought him down halfway to Caesarea and a couple of guys escort him and then the, 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 the doors on the train close shut or the, the, the cabin door closes and the, the plane takes off and then the whole community in verse 31 goes, yay! So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. Um, that word there, it's a conclusive word. Um, it can be translated so or therefore or then. The church enjoyed peace for three chapters. For three chapters, Saul goes underground, and we don't hear about him. And this is where I think the story gets really interesting. So for three chapters, Peter comes back up. So three chapters, Peter comes back up, and then, all right, I want to wrap things up here, but I'm, I'm having too much fun teaching this. Um, uh, okay, so for three chapters, Saul goes underground, and that encompasses about 10 years. So for 10 years, we know very little about what happened. Saul becomes a Christian and then drops off the grid for 10 years, and scholars call it his silent years. Scholars call those 10 years Saul's silent years because we hear very little. But we, you, you definitely get the sense that this is somebody learning, maturing, deepening. Now, I know for me, when I had my, my deeper experience and I was hot and I was, I was on fire, and I was burning out quickly. Here was Saul wanting to burn for God, but here's an important principle. When you're gonna burn for God, there's two ways to burn. You can burn like fuel, and you're gonna burn not very hot, and you're gonna flare out, and you'll be gone in seconds. Or, if you're gonna burn for God, you can burn like coal, which burns long, and deep, and hotter. Saul learns during those 10 years that you don't have to die for Christ right away in order to die for Christ. He learns during those 10 years 
maybe perhaps wondering, I want to die for Christ now, but then later on, you know, because I don't want to lose that fire, but later on when you read his writings, this is somebody that didn't cool down. This is somebody in many ways got deeper and hotter. All to say that in those silent years, learning and maturing, some of you may be in that place right now. Maybe some of you are in this place where you need to get grounded, maybe silent, maybe to go underground and learn. Maybe you feel like you're there. This is what I want to say to you. You're not going to stay there forever. You're not going to stay there forever. I believe it. I believe that if you are in your silent years, your silent years right now, that there will be a time that you're going to come out and your epistle will be written. So hang in there. It's not fun. For me, 11 years in the Pacific Northwest, literally like in the sticks, like mountain man in Alaska. My hair was like this and I had like a, like I, those were 11 years of wilderness for me. A lot of wilderness. A lot of, 11 years of going underground, silent and just learning. But you will come out and you're not, gonna, you're not meant to stay there. Because in the long term, what's his legacy going to be? His legacy is going to be in verse 13. Saul's legacy is he is a chosen instrument. So I haven't forgotten him. He's going to go and bear my name before Gentiles, before kings and people of influence and the sons of Israel. His time is coming. Your time, if you are in your silent years, your time is coming. Really quick, I want to wrap it up because it all ties in. Saul goes sub-level. Peter, rightly so, somebody who's been matured and discipled, reemerges, And from henceforth, it becomes Peter's story in Acts chapter 9, verse 32 to the end. So I'm going to read this quickly and wrap us up. In verse 32, as Peter was traveling through all those regions, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years for he was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Immediately he got up. And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Now in Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, Do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them. When he arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. <clears throat> And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up, and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. He wrote, he resurrected her from the dead. It became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord, and Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. Here's the conclusion. The conclusion that I want to make is in verse 40. Those words, Tabitha, arise. Tabitha, arise. Now, originally this was written in the Greek, so it says Tabitha, Anis. Anastathy, Tabitha Anastathy, which means in Greek, Tabitha arise. But this was written in Greek, but it, we have reason to believe quite possibly that when Peter uttered these words, he didn't say it in Greek. It was written in document in Greek, but he may have said it in Aramaic, just like Jesus. 
Saying it in Aramaic, if he said in Aramaic, it would have said Tabitha Kum. Tabitha Kum. Now, for good students of the Bible, that should sound familiar, especially for those of you who came from Harvest, and I preached the Gospel of Mark before this. This goes back to Mark chapter 5, where Jesus resurrected a little girl. Now, her name was not Tabitha, but in Aramaic, little girl is Talitha. And he used the words Talitha Kum to resurrect this little girl. Talitha Kum, little girl, arise. You have Peter, somebody who is matured and has been with the Lord. And had because he had been discipled and had been with the Lord for a long time, he's in a place where he can copy the Lord. Because he was in this close place, this close relationship, and knowing you just switch one letter from Talithakum to Tabithakum, that he can resurrect like Jesus, that he can work and do miracles like Jesus, that he can be like Jesus. Why? Because he had been sufficiently matured sufficiently discipled, sufficiently close to the Lord for a good long season. You see, what I'm doing is making a contrast. You can see a young disciple, somebody who's too hot to handle, too cold to hold, and then you've got somebody that's been through the deep and through the hot and the heavy, and that's walked closely with the Lord that he can even echo his words, Tabithakum to Talithakum. Scholars see the similarity there seasoned discipleship. 